Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Overlapping with taste yet larger in scope, smell is the sense that comes closest to pure perception. Smell can collapse space and time, unlocking memories and transporting us to worlds both new and familiar. Yet as clearly as each of us can recognize different smells, the bright tang of citrus, freshly sharpened pencils, parched earth after rain, few of us understand how and why we smell. In her new book, Revelations in Air, Jude Stewart takes us on a fascinating journey into the weird and wonderful world of smell. Jude Stewart writes about design and culture for Slate, to The Believer, Fast Company, Design, Observer, and other publications. She's contributing editor to Print Magazine, author of Roy G. Biv and Patronalia, and uh, lives in Chicago. Uh, Jude Stewart, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Tom. Uh, so fascinating book. I've, I've been enjoying it a lot. Um, I wonder, um, so, uh, I think a place to start uh, is the intimacy of smell. Um, and that's because, unlike some other senses, we, we haven't been able to electronically transport smell, right? At least in part. Very intimate. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, I mean, that was probably one of the main things that drew me to it was realizing that, um, you know, in order to smell something, you had to really be inside your body and be in a particular place at a particular time, and that it doesn't last forever. It's very fleeting. So it really grounds you in the here and now. So you're right. Smell delivers us back to, into our, to our bodies, underscoring liveness. Uh, and then you write, liveness is what drew me to smell. Uh, you talk about Smeller 2.0, and, <laughs> and I, love the, I love the name. Um, so tell us about that. Oh, all right. So I uh, spend a lot of time in Berlin in the summers, and uh, I stumbled into this art exhibit called Smaller 2.0. And it was um, basically, I I walked into this sort of hermetically sealed room, and in this room that was pretty much totally white, it had one wall that was just kind of filled in, if you imagine, like a sort of futuristic looking like church organ. Uh, And that was the entire wall, and it had the ability to pump out a smell and then really quickly remove it from the room and replace it with a new smell. And it was like having your finger stuck in an electric socket. Like, it was <laughs> so exhilarating and kind of upsetting and, um, like, all the feels all the time. And I just couldn't believe how um, how I was reacting in this way to smells. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of walked out of it, changed it, thought, well, gosh, I have to find out about this. Like, smell is everywhere, and yet I've not been paying attention. Like, how is this acting on me? And so I just really dove deep into uh, the research on that and came up with uh, this book. <laughs> uh, you go on to talk just, to, you know, the next paragraph over about uh, smell-o-vision. Um, I've heard about this. I never experienced it. I'd, I don't know whether I'm disappointed or glad. Um, but, but uh, you know, movie operators... Um, because smell is so linked to emotion, right? They they wanted to have you smell what's on the screen. But uh, tell us about that. It never really quite worked out. Yeah, there was a, a big craze for it. It kind of culminated, I think, in the early 1960s. There were two competing technologies, and they were like, racing to come out at the same time and one of them was called smell-o-vision and the other one was called aroma-rama and they operated according to like slightly different technologies but basically as you, you depicted the idea was like you'd go into a movie theater and you'd smell smells that would correspond to what you were seeing on the screen and that it would kind of emotionally punch up the, the vividness of the experience and um yeah, it never fully caught on because it's much trickier to do that than it sounds. Uh, the accuracy of the smells is important. The timing is right. Removing them from the room is actually pretty important. Otherwise, it's this weird kind of, you know, the layer of banana is right over the layer of, you know, stale garbage or something, and that's not a good smell. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's tough to do. 
uh, you said that um, most interesting people who'd bought tickets to see these movies seemed sneakily pleased when Smell-O-Vision failed. Uh, I, I wonder, yeah. wonder why you say that. Well, um, I mean, there was uh, some of the news. Uh, the news reporting at the time was kind of mixed. You know, some people were really intrigued by by going to one or the other of these movies and, you know, reported how it was really it was working for them. And then there were other reports that were a little, like, kind of, uh, you know, more critical. And those are the ones that have survived in history a bit. So it's interesting how history kind of distorts. But it's interesting also to think about, well, why is it that, you know, people would have this critique, this very fine critique? And the answer is because we're really good at smelling. We are very good at discerning like fake strawberry from actual strawberry. Um, you know, if the smell's not coming at the right time or resembling the way it would in actual turbulent air, we notice. And uh, so it actually points out how good people's noses are that they were kind of broken out of it when it wasn't perfectly rendered in a, in a movie setting. I wonder if you'd uh, read a few paragraphs. Uh, this is, this is uh, in the introduction, Roman numeral 18. Okay. Have your book with you. Um, and so start, okay. starting to, my untrained sense of smell couldn't contrast more with my highly trained sense of vision. And, and then just, uh, over completing the paragraph, you know, to the top of the next page. Okay. My untrained sense of smell couldn't contrast more with my highly trained sense of vision. As a design writer, I've done plenty of professional seeing and really enjoyed it. But lately the fun of visuals has steeply diminished. Images have become too perfect, nutrient light abundant and cheap. We're constantly making and consuming them. They've become accelerants hurtling us towards shopping. Consuming each picture takes zero time and yet collectively devours hours. We like images now not necessarily for themselves, but because looking at images precludes thinking. Taking a photograph seems to answer falsely an existential question. With this surface of images, a surfeit of images comes anesthetizing, a sneakily attractive part of the visual trap. Visual thinking is cerebral, monetized, and ultimately defensive. It pushes the embodied world away, allows us to retreat into our brain jars. Tiny flickering screens popped up, propped up near them. Tap, 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 blink, blink, blink. Seeing is soothing, yet irritating even in rest. Prior to Smeller 2.0, my attention, my literal and metaphorical eye, uh, had already been floating away from images and more towards whatever the deepening blizzard of images was papering over. What other sense perceptions do images help me hide from? Don't get me wrong, I still like graphic design, visual art, looking and seeing, but I wanted more for my senses. And so I began to wonder, how can I become a better smeller? And how might my life change if I did that? If a smell can encapsulate a personal memory, can it also encapsulate a collective history? And why does an avid interest in smell seem a little embarrassing? <laughs> yeah, and I, um, you go on to say that uh, you... you uh... You cited a 2018 New York Times op-ed piece titled, We Have Reached Peak Screen, Now Revolution is in the Air. And I, I, I think we all feel that, right? Uh, boy, a surfeit of visuals. Uh, you, you go on to talk about, uh, you know, there's a rebirth of audio, taste, resurgent, touch as well. So we maybe sense this surfeit of visuals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, thank you for letting me <laughs> read that because I felt kind of very uh, conflicted about it. And, uh, you know, because I do, I do still love the world of, of images and visuals, and I, and I can admire when it's done well, but there is something kind of lacking for me in it and kind of emotionally inert. And I was looking for, you know, a way to kind of take in the world differently. And 
and also kind of be less expert. Um, you know, when I think all of us are very good at parsing images at this point, and and if you write about graphic design, even more so. So I wanted to kind of do something that I wasn't so great at, <laughs> and you know, that involved my body and involved being in the world and and noticing things, you know, it, and training my sense of attention to something else. Uh, yeah, this is interesting. You say along with its liveness, you know, the intimacy taking you back into your body smells awkwardness through you like a magnet. If I had a push and pull, tell me about that awkwardness. Yeah, awkwardness. Yeah, um, I think I have a secret, uh, you know, inner thirteen-year-old boy. <laughs> I was really interested in um, the the way that uh, you know, if you get yourself in an awkward situation, a lot of times. It's it's awkward because there's something very vital and important happening there, uh, and it's not being articulated. So as a writer, I find myself kind of being drawn to those topics and those situations. Um, and, you know, smell is a little bit weird. Like when you say, oh, how can I become a better sm- smeller and how would that change my life? It's a little bit of a question that doesn't have an answer. And it's like, well, that's good for you that you have that hobby, <laughs> you know, but uh, I wanted to take that seriously. And it did seem a little like, slightly silly to um, be running around sniffing at everything. But um, by the same token, uh, you know, uh, I found myself really quite curious about that and wondering, like, well, why is it that we're sort of holding ourselves back from observing more through through our sense of smell? And, and maybe there's something vital and important there. And indeed, I felt that I found some of those things. Uh, speaking of awkward, and this is cultural, right? I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, New Guineans, you say, insert a hand into the other person's armpit and then sniff their fingers. That's a greeting, I guess. Yeah, this is true. And and our language, uh, you know, does not have a lot of words that are specific to smells. A lot of times, our our smell words are like, you know, they uh, chocolatey, or you know, they reference the thing that what the thing actually is. They don't have just a just a quality on their own. So our language is a little impoverished that way, and uh, and in co- culturally, we're just not running around observing things through the lens of smell very often. Um, but that said, I will say that I found that taste is really very informed by smell. It's something like eighty percent of what we. Uh, you know, actually taste is coming through our sense of smell. So it's kind of food and, and an interest in observing food is kind of a backdoor into realizing you're better at smelling than you think you are. Hmm. Uh, maybe just an aside, but very timely one. Um, and I'm sure you've probably thought of, about this. I, I don't know when you were working on the book, but it, at least partially probably during COVID, right? And um, and one of the side effects of, of uh, COVID for some people is losing taste and smell. Absolutely. Yeah. I was, um, gosh, I was about a third of the way through the book when, when the pandemic started. And then that whole summer, uh, summer 2020 was uh, when everybody started losing their sense of smell. And I was, you know, kind of accidentally very much checking up on my sense of smell all the time <laughs> because of writing this book. Um, yeah, my heart really goes out to those folks because most people do recover their sense of smell. But the reports that you get back from people about the experience um, are really um it's quite disruptive for them. You know, it, there's a higher incidence of depression and anxiety when people have their sense of smell loss for months at a time. Um, people describe the whole experience of it just suddenly being gone as very jarring. They can't smell their wife anymore. They can't smell their house. It doesn't smell like their house. Food smells like nothing. So they're either eating too much because nothing tastes like anything or they eat like bad food or they don't want to eat at all. Like people have gained loss of weight and so forth. So it's really disruptive in this way that was kind of surprising to a lot of people. And I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe smell is, is the sense we take most for granted, I guess, taste or smell. 
Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right about that. There's been several surveys pre-COVID that basically, when people were asked, you know, which if you had to lose one of your senses, which one would it be? And people generally went for smell. And I don't know that that same survey run today would really produce the same result. It's a, it's a tricky question, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, but yeah, there's a lot there's a lot more in in our sense of smell that brings us our feeling of reality and dimensionality and like being in an actual place as opposed to just floating in the ether. I want to maybe quickly tick off some very interesting facts um, that you encounter in the first few pages of the book. Of course, we would dive deeper in the book as we go along. But um, So you asked the question, what does the inside of your body smell like? <laughs> yes, yes. And, uh, and I think the answer uh, is, is revealed to us through, through surgeons' reports. And the idea is that it should be very, just a kind of humid pulsing sense, the, the, primarily what you would notice in a healthy body is that it would be just, just humid inside there. I mean, I asked that kind of ridiculous question um, because I was interested in how smell can transport us into places that most of us are not going to go. I've never been present at open heart surgery and I never will be probably. Mm-hmm. So asking that question brings me closer to that kind of theater of operations. Uh, along the same lines, what did World War One smell like? There, you know. They're, oh, what they're, did World War smell? Yeah, it was spring onions, very <laughs> fresh and spring-like, as I recall. Um, let me see what those. What? Let's see. Da, 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 da. Smell, mustard gas smells of lilacs, garlic, horseradish, and onions, <laughs> which is somewhat surprising to realize. Yeah, and you know, a, a danger, right? First, you didn't smell much of anything then you'd start smelling things and i guess if you if you knew what was going on uh by the time that mustardy smell came you better get out of there right exactly exactly yeah it was surprising how many um poisons and, and things like that had surprisingly very pleasant smells but if you knew what they were you would obviously think differently uh you say outer space contains no air and therefore no smells correct I correct thought about that but an yeah. interesting kind of sidestep on that is that people talk about um you know, lunar dust smelling like gunpowder that's been used. Uh, so, you know, because we, we have actually smelled that, or at least a few people have. Uh, and then I went on with the thought experiment a little further. Um, there's been some encounters with Mars dirt, which smells acrid and sulfuric, uh, I'm reading here, with a chalky sweet undertone. And then, uh, you know, I don't know if you've been following, if you'd like to follow these things about, you know, is there life on Venus? Is there life on wherever? Uh, but there are recent reports about phosphine gas found on Venus, which suggests that life might exist there, that would make this planet smell of decaying fish, assuming that we could breathe it in at all, which really we can't. But, you know, there's something about smells often show up in these kind of outer space crazy reports, and it's the reason, again, it's like, what if I was on Venus? What would it smell like? You know, how, it makes you feel like you're there. Uh, you say the trained doctors and dogs increasing electronic noses can detect smells of Parkinson's disease, melanomas, multiple sclerosis. Certain diseases emit certain smells, I guess. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And COVID is also one of those. There have been some reports and, and studies of, of uh, dogs being trained to to smell the, the smell signature of COVID on someone's body. So, you know, that could be a supplement, theoretically, to, you know, the TSA is that you would actually just have someone smelled uh, by the dog, and then they would know. Let's get into some of the science. Um, you say we smell with our entire bodies, um, smell, you say, is uh, the most recently studied. We we don't uh, maybe the least understood of of the of the senses. Yeah, absolutely. So that probably was like a one of the first things that really interested me. I started looking into smell vision, and you know, then sort of wondered how smell works. So the, the 
biological process of smelling is called olfaction. And, uh, you know, the receptors that we have in our eyes and our ears, these have been really well studied and, you know, kind of mapped out in a pretty definitive way for, for a while now. And our olfactory receptors were discovered, I think, in 1991, and uh, that earned the, the researchers a, um, a Nobel Prize in 2004. So that is really recent history. <laughs> so the fact that we know where our olfactory receptors are is kind of recent, and how they work is really something that people are figuring out right now. Um, uh, we have 400 different types of them, um, you know, basically stuff nose smells um, kind of waft up your nose and then they bind with proteins in your olfactory receptors, but we really don't know what that basic action is, uh, whether or not, like, why is it that we can smell so many more things besides 400 smells? That why is it that, like, one receptor will match with 15, 100 different smells? We don't know. Uh, you say in the book, um, I'm trying to get to this uh, here so I don't get it uh, wrong here. I might have to just uh, paraphrase it. Um, you say we're, we're not the best smellers, but we were the best at uh, recognizing smells. Did I get to get that right? Yeah, yeah. We're really good at distinguishing the different smells. So I mentioned earlier, I think I said something about like the difference between real strawberries and fake strawberries. Um, you know, we are, we are very good at the level of like distinguishing fine gradations between smells. So we're not as good as dogs at things like, you know, picking up very faint um your quantities of smells, for example, but but we are very good once we have picked it up on knowing the difference between the two, and a lot of that is uh, goes back to like our brains are have a lot of hardwiring that uh, is is there for smell and and for the discernment of smell, and the reason for that is I mean there's a lot of reasons, but um, one of the main reasons is you think about the evolutionary purpose of smelling is to kind of make sure that we're not. Um, you know, that incoming threats are, are signaled good and early. So, you know, if you smell something once, you will imprint upon it and remember it for a really long time. And, you know, slight variations in that smell might signal a food that's going off or something. So that small difference matters. Why, uh, why is smell so connected to memory and emotion? Um, that has to do also with how our brains are structured. So when smells, I mentioned earlier, your smells like kind of waft up your dose the olfactory receptors are in this area, you know, where your glasses rest on your face, so right at the top of your nose, like the bridge. And uh, and right there is where your olfactory bulb kind of extends out from your brain. And smells are processed right there. Um, they don't, and then they get that your olfactory bulb is tied up with two other areas of your brain that are kind of from the old brain. So the amygdala, which has to do with emotions, and the hippocampus, which has to do with memory. So this is all old brain type material in your in your head that just has nothing to do with our like verbal processing or you know executive function or anything like that. So um, you know it's hard to put words to smells and we have to kind of work extra hard against our own brain structure. Um, but you know if you think again about why evolutionarily we would have smell in the first place, um, a lot of times when you're you're smelling something you and it's an important experience like you might have an emotion about it and that will fuse with a memory so those three things being bound together and being you know kind of cemented in the smell are kind of make sense um, if you think about it and it I is don't know if I made sense there. I can yes, repeat that if you yeah, want. <laughs> yeah, no no that was that was great uh, and we all know it's true right we we've all had that experience of uh, uh, you know smell you you talk about you know, you go back to your old elementary school, uh, a lot of things will change. You won't recognize things, but you'll, you, you'll conjure up memories from the, from the smells. 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of studies also about this idea of like when you, you know, if you want to prompt someone's memory, if you can show them a picture of their first grade class versus like somehow you transported them to the smell of that room. I mean, I made that study up, but that just just to, to cite your example, uh, you know, if you can if you can prompt a memory through a visual means versus a smell means, you know, which one is going to be the more like emotionally forceful or clear memory? And the smell kind of wins almost every time. Um, so uh, yeah, it's a. It's, it's, I want to be careful with that. It's just, it's a powerful trigger for a lot of people, good and bad. Uh, can we detect fear or other emotions through smell? Oh yes. Yes, we can. That's so interesting. There are a series of studies around this, and uh, one that I really enjoy is when um, there were two groups of people who were asked to, and in all these small studies, people are generally asked to wear like a freshly laundered T-shirt, and they're not supposed to do things that will kind of, you know, mess with the smells of their body. So they don't wear deodorant or perfume. They don't eat spicy foods for several days. Anyway, these people are fairly like neutral. So two groups of people were, went in to see two different movies. One of them went to see The Shining, and when they were watching this scary movie, sweated into their T-shirts, the smells of fear. And then the other group went to see the Disney's, Disney's The Jungle Book, so a very cheerful, kind of happy-making movie. And these folks are laughing along with the movie and, you know, sweating into their T-shirts. So then the T-shirts were removed and given to another group of people, and people were asked to, you know, tell the fear T-shirts from the happy T-shirts, and they were very, very good at that. <laughs> so yes, yeah, that's that, that's amazing. We're we're pick, we we think maybe we're picking this up through other senses, but at least assisted, we're picking up through taste or through through smell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, well, let's take a break. When we come back, let's uh, let's, let's get into talking about. Um, you, you have a whole section on the nose. <laughs> um, and uh, you say in passing the, the nose is really weird, which I guess it is if you really think about it. Um, we we'll talk about uh, a little more about how uh, smell works, and then I want to get into some specific smells. Um, yeah. And, and, and you know, you, you describe these. By the way, before we go to break, you're a writer, right? Writing about visuals mm-hmm. mostly, and then you get into smell. Did you? I think we generally have a hard time describing smell. Did you? Did you have that difficulty at first? Because you, you write very eloquently about them in the book. Oh, thank you. I mean, that was kind of partly the the challenge that interested me was sitting down and writing about the smell and evoking it without it sounding like a perfume ad or or kind of just being overheated in general. It's very hard to um, to evoke a smell without it becoming kind of off-putting in one way or another. <laughs> so that was that was an interesting writerly challenge for sure. I mean, we when I say freshly sharpened pencil, I'll, I'll bet you everybody, you know, in the audience, you know, we can smell that, right? Or mm-hmm parched earth after rain we can smell it but describing it's another thing so i'll i'll have you describe some of these things uh, for us uh, after the break uh, we're talking uh, with jude stewart author of revelations in air a guidebook to smell we'll have more following this break thanks for listening to access you tom tom williams we're talking with uh, jude stewart her new book is revelations in air a guidebook to smell so he talks about uh, the science of smell. Uh, then she goes on to uh, gives us some exercises in the book. Uh, we'll get into some of those. And uh, then she goes through many different uh, smells, describing those and uh, talking. It gets us into uh, art and history and science and, and more. Uh, fascinating book. It's called uh, Revelations in Air, a guidebook to smell. So, uh, Jude Stewart, um, you say... the. Uh, 
trying to find this. Well, we we think there are five senses, right? But in the book, you say wrong. How many senses do we have? Oh my gosh! Well, the current count is at twenty-two, I believe. Um, but yeah, there's a. It's interesting to to realize that, and and, and they're not all necessarily so so hard to understand. Uh, that there would be additional senses, but um, I'll give you a couple of examples here. Um, some of the senses that you might not be thinking of as senses is your sense of pain, your sense of pressure, uh, thermoception, which is your ability to sense heat or cold. Uh, I really like uh, proprioception is the, the, the way that you can feel your body in space. So if you can close your eyes and you can touch your nose with your fingers, you're able to do that because of your sense of proprioception. Um, so we have quite a few senses and they're all always operating in sync with each other. So when you were saying earlier about, you know, be smelling fear, you're probably also observing fear with your eyes. You might be um, you know, taking in someone's body language and they're moving and they're shaking. There's a lot of senses at play and smell is one of them that's maybe confirming the other, the evidence of the other senses. So that's working all the time. Smells are just concatenating reality for us. So uh, you you have a section on the nose itself. Uh, you say a book that about smell should start with noses for more than the obvious reasons. And then you want to say noses are funny and awkward and fascinating you, and then you talk about your own nose. Uh, you, you say you broke your nose, and uh, you, you, you like it better now. I did, yes, yes. I'm glad to tell all of you, Tom, about my big nose. <laughs> oh, I got it. <laughs> no, I, um, I, I was uh, racing at one point to, to catch a train, and I was racing against you know snow and so forth, and I was going to see my now husband uh, uh, in his house, um, and I banged into a train door. I don't know if you know those, like, those doors that open and close when you get right. to the gate, and it just banged me on the nose. And I got on the train, and I was like, oh, just sat there for, you know, five minutes, just hurting. And then the next day, I had this little blue line over my nose, and now it's a little bit taller than it used to be. <laughs> but luckily, I didn't, you know, sustain any real damage. But um, it has it has made for a face with a slightly larger nose, and, you know, you have to kind of... Uh, Think about that. And I think also with books like this, people wonder, like, are you are you really, like, super expert at this subject? Like, do you know something that I don't? And I want to emphasize, uh, not only was I sort of having some fun with my own nose, but also kind of pointing out, like, my nose is just pretty much like your nose. Like, I was not better at smelling before this. I am a little bit better than I was before, but I'm sort of moved from a B- minus to, like, a solid B-plus in my capabilities. Mm. Um, you write, detached from its face, a nose always seems like it should have two dangling strings attached. It's a mask of personhood, even a synecdoche of, for the entire self. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was interested in, in that, um, in thinking about, you know, not just like how the nose works and the biology of the whole thing, but also sort of what does it mean to us to think about uh, what is our nose? And, uh, you know, and it's funny when you dig into the history of that, how varied uh, that history becomes. There are these pretty extensive um, history of, like, nose classification systems um, and a lot of a lot of sort of quasi-science, like, along the lines of phrenology, you know, studying people's head shapes, thinking about, okay, how does your nose, the shape of your nose, like, relate to your personality or, you know, characteristics of you, you as a person. Um I found some weird evidence, a little bloody in this section, but about nose amputations. There's a lot of uh, history of, like, the ultimate humiliation would be to amputate your nose, which I can't disagree about. Um, but also probably most interesting uh, is this, uh, this, the way that we, we have all these terms in our language that have survived as metaphors that relate to, like, nose 
and smelling being a form of intelligence. You know, you think about like you get a whiff of this or does it pass the smell test? Um, you know, we had in the past even more terms and, and phrases like that that indicate like smell has something to do with a very particular kind of wisdom or intelligence. Uh, so I want to uh, jump into, I guess, I think this might be the first exercise in the book. You, you have several exercises through the book. Uh, so you set out to, I don't know, what, to, to detect smells better and certainly to write about them. Uh, but you said you went from a B- minus to a B plus. But uh, you encourage, uh, you know, people who read the book to, to do these exercises and, and what, get, get better at smelling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the exercises a little bit, uh, you know, trace my own my own things that I learned in the process of making the book. And, you know, if someone has picked up this book and is enjoying it, maybe they would want to kind of go through a similar process. So some of the exercises are geared that way. And some of them are just to share interesting, (laughs) you know, science that has been, you know, there wasn't another place in the book to to share. Um, But uh, yeah, the first, the first exercise is about observing smells properly because I encountered this kind of over and over, which is, you know, how, how do I get at a smell? Like, if you're looking intentionally to smell something, sometimes it's a little harder than you think it's going to be. Like you mentioned freshly sharpened pencils and I thought, Oh, that'll be great. I'll just buy a pencil and smell it. And that doesn't really work. Really what I needed to do was sharpen a bunch of pencils, get them in a tiny little um, jar of some kind and stick my nose kind of deep in there and move things around, jostle it a bit. And um, even there it was tricky because uh, as I kind of learned and relate in this exercise, uh, smells that are very dry are kind of more difficult to get to. Um, it's it's helpful when the environment is very humid. Um, and smells, you know, so pencils are kind of operating against that. So in this little exercise, I talk about all of these little tricks. Like, so get the smell in an enclosed space. Uh, move it around a bit. Jostle it. Um, if you can get it wet, go ahead and try and get it wet. Um, stick your nose really way up in there, and uh, and that that all of that will help to kind of unlock the smells a bit more. Uh, so you say smell doesn't have really have a developed alphabet, right? Yeah, you have, sound has wavelength, right? Um, um, you know, light has uh, has a spectrum that's agreed upon. So what what did you use for the, you know, the 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 groups of smells in in your book? Yes, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so there's uh, there's ten categories in the book, uh, so ten sections of the book, and I, I base them really loosely on a, um, a scientific study. I wanted there to be some basis <laughs> for, for you know, what sections I chose, but I based them pretty loosely on this uh, on a study that had some group, groupings of that kind that were a little more expansive than what perfumers use. Perfumers do have their own groupings, but by definition, they're mostly trying to, um, you know, classify smells that are, that smell good. There's not too many stinks. Uh, and I wanted to make sure I had, you know, a, a classification system that could in, allow for some stinks too, because stinks are interesting. Um, so I, I used that as a basis, and then uh, and then I kind of tacked on a tense category, which I referred to as otherworldly, which is like the smells that defy the <laughs> categorization, you know. Um, and so that was one where I could get some uh, smells in that were kind of fun and hard to um, hard to know how to shoehorn in. So like extinct flowers or the smell of new babies or old books, uh, odor of sanctity. These are all ones that ended up in that tense section. Uh, I, I think that's the one that fascinated me the most. What I want to spend a little time there as we go along. But uh, I want to have you maybe we'll just uh, pick a few of these as we go along and have you read 
um, a bit because I, I, you know, I think you do a, a great job of describing this. Again, we all kind of you know, we know this, but we have trouble describing this. I wonder if you'd start with uh, is it pronounced petrichor? Yes. Uh, so page yes, yes. twenty-seven. I wonder if you just read the first two paragraphs. All right, let's get that. Okay, so this is the first smell in the book, and it's in the section called Flowery and Herbal. Uh, And you will learn right away what petrichor is. Petrichor, the smell of parched earth after rain, is immersive, roomy enough to move around in. Its bright mineral tang is edged with vegetal green. There's a hint of sourness, haloed by fresh water droplets. How much did you want me to read, by the way? Uh, just Just the next paragraph. Yeah. Next paragraph. Petrichor lifts the ground with all its smells closer to the nose. It's as if the earth has exhaled. Because the smell emanates from millions of pinpoints at once, Petrichor has a stereoscopic quality. Inside the smell, each moment seems to dilate and slow. It fills the air with relief. You go on to say that one message Petrichor conveys is you can't smell anything unless that thing is changing in some way. Mm-hmm. That- Correct, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just say that's a that's you know that's a powerful message. Yeah, yeah. I think with all the smells I chose here, I wanted to talk a bit about. I wanted at the end of the chapter, I wanted you to have a sense of that particular smell and understanding something more about its own history or whatever was interesting, the story inside of it. But I also wanted you to learn something about some aspect of smelling in general. And in, in Petrichor, really, the message is a lot about this idea of like change. Um, so, because I think that also ties back to liveness, you know, um, smells are released when things change. When you observe a smell, it's because something is like in the process of changing. And, um, you know, that was, that actually holds true for every single smell in the entire book. So it was a really important message to get through early. Uh, you have an exercise in this chapter, uh, start a smells journal. Do you, uh, I guess, do you have a smells journal? Oh yes. I had a smells journal and, um, I uh, kept it on my phone, so it was really uh, kind of a low-bar type exercise. At the beginning, I, when I got interested in this topic, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to challenge myself to observe one smell every day. And what's interesting is that there, uh, there were two kind of effects of this little, little habit, and one was expected and the other was unexpected. The expected one was that, yes, I started observing smells more because I was trying to notice one every day and write something down about it. Um, so you always end up noticing more than one smell. <laughs> but the unexpected benefit of doing this was that uh, I created this kind of, it was a really great way to journal um, because I remember writing smells down and then, you know, I remember other things from that day. Um, so, uh, you know, I remember there's the day in Chicago when the um, lilacs come out is right around this time. We have this very slow, reluctant spring. It barely ever happens. And you have like two days of spring and then it's summer. Uh, so I remember last, maybe two years ago, uh, when the lilacs came out, it was like the same day that I got this big check in the mail. And I remembered that, oh, the smell of the lilacs, and I got the check. How wonderful. <laughs> and so it kind of brought that whole day back just to have written down the day of the lilac smell. So that happened a bunch. It's, it's a fun exercise. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice way to... to uh... Uh, a nice way to organize your your uh, I guess your life, or to you know to, mm-hmm. to write about your life. Um, let's see. Well, let's uh, we'll have time to to get all of the uh, the the uh, you know the 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 groups in. But I wonder maybe just a couple more. Maybe maybe choose for us just a couple more smells before we go to break. Oh my! Let's see. Um, well, I just opened up to vanilla. 
Oh, I can, yes. uh, okay, so I'll give you a little um, vanilla. The scent is languorous, deep and sweet. Smelling it makes you feel like you're resting in a still, heat-filled shadow that pools and pools around you. It smells replete. Vanilla's scent also incongruously makes you feel talky. And no wonder, because the smell appears in almost every tasty treat. Sniffing it repeatedly starts an ever-expanding game of free association. You can sniff for various dried fruits and find them each in turn. Raisins, dates, prunes, currants, apricots. Sniff again, and the scent shapeshifts between granulated sugar, aged wood, hothouse flowers, and tobacco. You can find the deep, syrupy liquid of brown liquors. All the while, the mind clicks through a pleasant visual slideshow, cycling through every possible shade of amber. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, vanilla. And uh, you have an, uh, frequently asked questions at the back of the book. Vanilla is the answer to a, uh, a question. Uh, is there a universally loved smell? I guess it's vanilla. Yes, right? yes. There was recently uh, like a little flurry of uh, news in my news alert about <laughs> around this. Um, you know, confirming this as, a, as an impression. Yeah, I think the reason for that is uh, it's kind of interesting when you unpack it because smell is, or vanilla is added to a lot of different foods, and so it, it has this kind of supporting actor kind of quality where it, it amps up the flavors of whatever whatever is the main flavor or smell. It will kind of round it out really nicely. So it's it's an important additive in a lot of fruits, but I think it also um, appeals to people because it is one of these unusual smells. It doesn't activate what's called our trigeminal nerve. We have these nerves in our face and nose that um, are activated when we smell something like um, like when you cut onions or when you smell like cooling mint or, you know, sting- stinging hot type peppers. And a lot of times we don't like it when those nerves are activated. And vanilla is one of the few smells that doesn't activate that set of nerves at all. So that removes the main obstacle <laughs> for disliking something. <laughs> Oh, maybe pick another uh, another smell and uh, describe it for us. All right, are you are you feeling up for a little a little stink? Uh, sure. Can we go with some stink? Okay, yeah. I have stinky cheese here. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, feet, feet. From inside a round wooden box, the smell rises in waves like a rolling miasma. It seems to pulse with intensity. It waggles its very unwashed toes. Cradling the box in my hand with its contents encased in fluted wax paper, one feels the perversion of an overly close excavation of something intimate, noxious, unstable. Uh, the outer rind of my cheese is orange and mottled in the lacy pattern. Sniffing an inch or two from the rind produces a concentrated, potent, highly interesting little cloud. It feels like me- meeting an alien creature livid with unfamiliar energy, which breathes nervously as it rests in your palm. That equilibrium is fine so long as it remains undisturbed. Sniff the cheese from any closer, however, and your nostrils shut down as if seared by chemical blast. Mm. Um, so this is a very expensive cheese, Lamy du Chabotin, that I bought <laughs> and, and used as my uh, my example for a very stinky cheese. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is there a after you embarked upon this, you know, this journey? Is there a smell you hadn't encountered before, but you encountered and you know had a big impression upon you? Oh, yeah. Um, well, like I said, I don't want to blast your listeners with too many smells but um, or too many stinks. But another one that I uh, 
encountered it for the first time was a durian, which is a really smelly fruit that comes from Malaysia and Southeast Asia. And uh, I live in Chicago near little Vietnam, and uh, we were able to go down and buy durian when they were in season. Um, and they are very popular for making ice cream with. And I knew this was a, you know, an, a thing that people were into. And I'm like, all right, let's try this. It's, it's pandemic summer. Let's make durian ice cream. And it really does smell pretty pretty ripe. It's like a rotting onion type smell. It's not something I've ever associated with a fruit. Uh, and yet when you open up the fruit and you get to the inside, it's got this beautiful creamy um, interior and it makes this really silky um, ice cream, kind of like a custardy flavor. And a slight like tingle to your tongue, like it's a little, spicy is like the wrong word, but it sort of brings a sort of heat to it. Um, so it's a very weird taste combination. Um, and it does, the ice cream also smells like <laughs> like kind of rotting onions, <laughs> which is just, just odd. And um, I guess I mentioned all of this because I knew that it was stinky going in and I knew that people kind of millions of people had overcome that dislike and loved this ice cream. And so I wanted to make friends with the stink and I managed to do that. I don't know about my family, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> but you did. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah. Well, let's take another break. Uh, we'll come back with our last segment, Jude Stewart. Uh, her new book is Revelations in Air, a guidebook to smell. Um, I definitely, before we end, and we'll do this maybe early after we come back to make sure we get this in, I want to talk about ectoplasm. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, it's exactly <laughs> exactly what you're thinking, you know, a paranormal, the ectoplasm. Um, and what does that smell like? And we'll have uh, that and much more following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking about a new book. It's called Revelations in Air, a guidebook to smell. We're talking with the author, Jude Stewart. Uh, another uh, about eight or nine minutes left in this conversation. Uh, so, Jude Stewart, I mentioned this. Let's get right to this. This is in your uh, section called, uh, called Otherworldly. So you've got new baby, extinct flowers, an invented smell, odor of sanctity, old books, and you also have, a, have ectoplasm. Uh, so what is ectoplasm? Ectoplasm is uh, a material that was um, kind of came up a lot during the spiritualist movement. Um, so you, you've heard of mediums and table turning and that sort of thing. So that was very big in the late 19th century into the early 20th century. And the uh, idea was that uh, usually a woman would be in the medium and you'd meet in some dark room and she would, you know, summon the dead and, you know, um, report back whatever it was that they had to say. And so ectoplasm came into this mix because it was, um, basically it was supposed to be evidence of like the spiritual world penetrating through the medium uh, into this world. So it was physical evidence of that, of that connection. Um, so, you know, it would dribble out of the woman's, the medium's mouth or her uh, armpits or something like that. Um, so what was really interesting to me about this and why, like, I chose to put it in is that um, people in their contemporary accounts would talk a lot about the sense of smell around it. So the smell was like an evidence of its realness, that the, it gave this material quality to, like, the spiritual realm coming into everyday life. And they would just always really talk up the smell aspect. So... Um, you know, of course, ectoplasm doesn't exist, but, you know, these mediums would make mix up ectoplasm and there would be some kind of thing that they would call ectoplasm that they had a little recipe for. So I tried to make some of it and see if I could get it to smell the same way. It wasn't totally successful, <laughs> but uh, it was an interesting thought experiment. So it, uh, the recipe includes what, eggs and what else? 
let's see, it was egg whites, glue, soap shavings, uh, and then it would be like you'd, you'd make like a kind of slurry of that, and then you put cheesecloth in it. Uh, if I were really good, I would have had gelatin that was, you know, made from horse hooves, like really old-fashioned gelatin. I did not have that kind. Um, but, uh, you know, it was often likened, the smell was often likened to ozone, so this kind of wet, fresh, slightly metallic-type smell. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I replicated that well enough with my vegan, you know, gelatin. <laughs> um Tell me about extinct flowers. You say you're, you were going to globe trot, but then COVID hit. Uh, you, you ask, how is it possible to smell an extinct flower? Uh, tell me. Yeah. Oh, that's that was such an interesting one. Um, so this group of artists got together with a group of um, biotechnicians, and they um, you know wanted to see if they could recreate the smells of certain extinct flowers. And the idea, I think, was to um, to kind of give some emotional heft to the idea of climate change. So when you a flower is gone. It's it's gone because its entire ecosystem is gone. Um, so they they went to the Harvard Herbarium where there are a bunch of extinct flowers, uh, you know, in files. Uh, they found a whole bunch of different actual plants that had been preserved and cut off very small portions of them. And basically, there's a Frankensteining process that I describe in the book, but isolating the DNA that would have been associated with uh, the smells that the flower produced, um, finding those, grafting them onto living yeast. They start producing smell molecules and then sort of amplifying what, what was produced to create a smell that we could actually um, discern with our noses. But the, the net effect was that, uh, that I was hoping to experience was that you would walk into this little glass cube that would be, you know, uh, outfitted as if it were the, the lava or, you know, um, rock hills of volcanoes in Maui and that the, the plants would be there and the rocks would be there and you can imagine the cattle in the distance and that you'd be smelling this flower that was extinct. Um, that was suffusing the air inside this box um, and, you know, it would be evocative of this like entire vanished um, ecosystem. Uh, you have a section on new baby and you, you talk about when your son was uh, born. Uh, it's interesting that um, you say mothers and babies recognize each other first by smell. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of evidence around that, um, which is sort of crazy. Um but yes, I mean, several studies, and sometimes the, the the women are able to identify the children, you know, based on very, very little prior interaction, um, you know, and, uh, and you know, the reasons for this probably have to do with, with breastfeeding, but I think they go beyond that, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a sort of deep bond. What's really interesting is that babies are smelling inside the, the womb as well. Um, so, you know, they are actually sort of taking in things and kind of practicing smelling and tasting. Their, things are coming through, smells and tastes uh, are coming through in the amniotic fluid. And so, you know, they're, they're ingesting whatever their mother's ingesting, which is kind of training their palate early on just from whatever you eat as the mother. So, yeah, there's, a long, there's already a long, like, kind of handshake, if you will, uh, between the mother and the child about uh, recognizing each other's smells. Um, I was very interested in your description of snow, um, and you say your nose, when you smell snow, your nose is registering blankness, uh, you know, it's cold, and so, you know, that, that suppresses uh, smell, uh, an unusually complete absence of smells, and you're experiencing humidity. Uh, tell me about snow. Yeah, so the smell of snow is really reliable, but it's not really a smell. It's kind of like a workaround, and it's interesting to kind of unpack how that works. So as you say, you know, um, 
one of the first things, I think I mentioned this in one of the early exercises, that that warm, humid environments are conducive to smelling things. And so, you know, cold, dry environments are not. Um, so if you're in a situation where it's really cold, then you're, you know, your nose is generally like not smelling very much. But with the onset of snow, you have a rise in humidity. And so we do observe that and suddenly like it's like the switch is turned on and you can start to smell a little more again. And then I mentioned earlier these, these nerves in your face called the trigeminal nerve that are activated a lot of times during smells. Um, they're the same ones that you, that you feel when you chop onions or you like smell something really spicy or um, you know, smell like eucalyptus or what have you, that cooling sensation is a type of touch. Anyway, the third layer of the smell, sense of smell is that you feel those nerves activating in your face. And so those three signals taken together are pretty reliable indicator that snow is really coming. There's a lot in the book. We obviously won't be able to get to everything. The book is Revelations and Error Guidebook to Smell, so you'd have to go out and get the book. But um, just a couple of minutes left. I want to make sure we got this in. This sounds like a fun exercise, several exercises in the book. This one is called Navigate Around a Room by Smell Alone. Tell us very briefly about this. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, there was actually a, an artist who, who I, I, this was a, something I had come up with on my own, and then I found out that someone had already done it, an olfactory artist, um, which is referenced in the book. But the idea is pretty simple, that you would, you know, take essential oils and kind of hide them around your room, get your room ready for, you know, a stumbling, blindfolded person, <laughs> set your smells accordingly, and see if you can navigate just using your nose to the individual smells. Um, and uh, that is it's just a process of kind of, testing your sense of navigation through smells, which is really important for many animals, uh, less important for us, but, but also not unimportant for us. Um, we do have the ability to navigate uh, using smells. There's another exercise that talks about a um, University of California, Berkeley study in which um, students are like blindfolded and, you know, all their senses are blocked essentially. And they're, they're asked to follow a dribble of chocolate essential oil along the ground just using their noses. So imagine like, you know, completely blindfolded, you know, people just scuffling on the ground following a sense of smell. But they can do it pretty well, and then they get better the second time they do it. Um, so we do have some of that vestigial capability to navigate the smell. Um, just a, a minute left. Uh, I want to end with this question, a very brief answer here. Um, what, what is the biggest thing you've gotten from this from this journey? Oh, boy. Um I, yeah, I asked that question, how would it change me? And uh, it definitely has. I would say that um, smelling is kind of a mindfulness turned inside out, you know. So when you're, like, meditating and you're focusing on your breath, you're focusing inward, you know, you might, you might be counting breaths or mantra or what have you. But when you're smelling, you're also breathing, but you're focusing on the world, you know. So it pins you in, as I said, into this here and now. You observe something that's happening right around your body in your vicinity and then it doesn't last forever. It's, it, it just goes when it's, when it's done. So um, it's a great way to be present. So I'm, I would just encourage you to go out and try smelling today, and you'll feel a little bit more present. That's certainly been my uh, takeaway from it. Well, uh, Jude Stewart's been our guest on Access Utah. The new book is Revelations in Era, Guidebook to Smell, and uh, the website is judestewart.com. Jude Stewart, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Tom. This was great. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah Today.